Genesis chapters 46 and 47. And I'm going to read a few sections from this part of God's word. But before we do, let's, uh, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. Lord, we thank you for your word that every uh, jot and tittle of it is breathed out by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that it is profitable for, for teaching and instruction and correction and, um, and rebuke and it is capable of equipping us for every good work. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would make your word profitable to us today, pointing us to uh, your grace in the Lord Jesus Christ and instruct us in the way that we ought to go. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Beginning in uh, chapter 46, uh, verse 1, uh, just to set the context, word has come to, to Joseph, or to Jacob, that uh, Joseph, his, his favored son, his favorite son, is in fact alive and well and is a ruler in Egypt. And so we read in the beginning of chapter 46, so Israel, that's Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt And I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And then uh, verses 26 and uh, 27 tell us that all of the people of the house of Jacob that went down to Egypt were, were 70. And uh, Judah, uh, one of the brothers, is sent ahead of the caravan down to Egypt to tell Joseph that the family was on the way. And Joseph tells Pharaoh and then goes out himself to meet uh, his father in uh, chapter 46, verses 29 and 30. uh, We read, then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him. And fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Uh, Then the brothers are uh, presented to Pharaoh. And uh, picking up in chapter 47, verse 1, we read, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their livestock or their flocks and herds, And all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And uh, so the brothers have this meeting with uh, with Pharaoh and, and then Later on, down further in the text, the Egyptians are, are coming in need to, to Joseph because they are without uh, grain in the midst of this famine, and they reach a point where they have no money, and so they come to Joseph and begin exchanging their livestock for grain, 
Uh, and then eventually when the livestock are gone, verse, uh, verse 20, the Egyptians themselves become aware or become the, the servants of, of Pharaoh. Uh, this whole story reaches a climax in verse 25 where the people say to uh, Joseph, you saved our lives. May it please my Lord and we will be servants to Pharaoh. And then as the passage ends, Jacob makes his son Joseph vow that he will take his body out from the land of Egypt back into the land of promise. So after all, all of these years of assuming that his favored son, his favorite son, was dead, uh, Jacob's other sons return from Egypt and tell him, in, in fact, Joseph is alive. And more than that, Joseph is a leader in Egypt. And we were told back in chapter 45, uh, verse uh, 26, that uh, Jacob's heart became numb at the news. I mean, it was, it was a shocker. Uh, his, his heart stopped, as it were. He was, he was in utter disbelief. He didn't believe what the brothers were saying until they recounted everything that Joseph had told them, and, and until he saw with his own eyes the wagons coming from Egypt to carry them down to be reunited. We might think that, uh, you know, at this point when, when Jacob says, uh, after his spirit is revived, it is enough, I will go down to Egypt and see Joseph before I die. We might think that this would be actually a great place for the book of Genesis to come to an end and bring down the curtain. Um, the father is aware that his long-lost son is actually alive, and the father and the son are going to be reunited. But this isn't the end of the story because God isn't finished yet. And God is certainly is not finished with Jacob. While much of these chapters focuses upon Joseph, we've, we've also seen that this story is really about God's grace and his work among this entire dysfunctional family. And, and so in chapters 46 and 47 this morning, I, I want us to briefly look at three more scenes that we see in these two chapters. There is the reunion scene, there is a gospel scene, and there's a Jacob scene. And so in the first place, I, I want us to, to think about this reunion scene, how God graciously brings about this marvelous reunion, and yet at the same time, it's not all that we might expect uh, Pharaoh's wagons have been sent to, to bring Joseph's family to supply transport for, for Joseph's 130-year-old father. And as they come into the land of Egypt, Joseph himself goes and greets his family, but in particular goes to see his father once again. So there's this marvelous reunion of, of father and son after all of these years. It is, it is a marvelous scene. And yet I think there is a striking omission there, there is something missing here that I think if, if we've paid close attention to the story up to this point, we will notice. Uh, do you remember when, uh, when Joseph and Benjamin met uh, down in Egypt? What happened? Uh, we're told that they, they, they threw themselves upon each other's necks and, and they wept. Joseph and Benjamin both wept tears of Joy, tears of relief, tears of thanksgiving for, for sure. Now, in this passage, though, it's striking when, when Jacob meets his son, 
Joseph, we read in, in verse 29 of chapter 46, Joseph presents himself to his father, falls on his father's neck, neck and, and wept a good long while. You notice what's missing there. Uh, there's only one person weeping. And it's not his father Jacob. It's Joseph. What's the explanation for that? I think if we've been paying close attention to where Jacob is at spiritually over these last couple of decades, we, we, we have to say the explanation for that is at this point in Jacob's life, he is a sad, old believer. Uh, you remember when the blood-coated uh, coat was placed before Jacob and he was left to draw the natural conclusion and he said, that's it, I'm going to go down into the grave mourning. No one can comfort me. I can receive no consolation. I've lost my precious, beloved Joseph. And so he committed himself to going down into the grave in a state of, of sorrow and day after day. He was, he was miserable. He refused the comfort of family members and in doing so he refused the comfort of God. And later on in, in uh, his conversation with Pharaoh, we didn't read it, but he, he's standing before Pharaoh and they're having this, I think, you know, sort of a polite conversation. And Pharaoh asks him the question, um, how many years are the years of your life? And uh, Jacob answers the question, but you notice he, he inserts something else. He says, uh, the days of my sojourning have, have been 130 years long. 130 years. Uh, my year, my, the years of my life have been short and full of evil, full of trouble. That's how Jacob saw his life. And so at this point, I think we need to see that Jacob is a sad old believer. And I think, though, we need to go a step further and say the explanation for that is that Jacob was, well, in large part uh, responsible for how he is feeling at this moment. He was, he was emotionally hardened, but he was emotionally hardened because of his own nagging failure and guilt, his own sin. And when others had sought to bring him comfort, he, he refused to be comfort, comforted. And I think we're meeting an old 130-year-old man who has become emotionally hardened. And, and the reunion with Joseph, you see, it doesn't, it doesn't bring the, the, the relief and, and the, the emotional release that it might have brought in in his life, because as a believer, as a true believer in the Lord, he had resisted the comfort and the blessings of God in his life these last decades of his life. And so Jacob is a sad old believer. And the lesson to, to learn from that is that this problem in Jacob's life is actually rooted years prior to this, and we are now seeing the fruit of it in Jacob's life. Jacob once had, had, had zeal and enthusiasm. He is, he is the man who said to the angel of the Lord, I am, I am not letting go until you bless me. Uh, he, is, he is a man who had incredible spiritual experiences, but then he had begun to resist the work of God in his life. He'd lost sight of the the glory of God in his life. He had started to rely and depend upon other things. And when those things were taken away, he was on the brink of despair. 
He was almost consumed by trouble and sorrow. And I think we need to say that Jacob was in grave, grave danger of dying as a sad old believer. I think the lesson then as well is, you know, the wonder of this story is that while Jacob is a bruised reed in a faintly burning wick, the Lord does not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. It's a word, I think, to sad old Christian men and women that restoration is yet possible if we will receive that restoration from the Lord. And it is a word to the rest of us in our younger years and in our, in our middle-aged years to, to give heed to the decisions and the heart commitments that we are making right now because we will see the fruit of those commitments decades in the future. And so there is this reunion scene. And then secondly, I want us to look at this gospel scene uh, in, in these chapters. Where, where do we see a, a gospel scene? Well, remember, um, remember the words of the Apostle Paul in uh, Galatians chapter 3 that God proclaimed the gospel to, to Abraham. As before Christ came, God proclaimed the gospel to Abraham. Where do we see that? We see that in the promises that God was giving to Abraham. Among them was Genesis uh, chapter, chapter 12. In your seed, in your offspring, the nations of the world would be blessed. And God was, God was beginning to work out that promise. The promise that finds its ultimate fulfillment in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham, who brings blessing to the nations of the world. And as part of God working out that promise through history, he said he would bring his covenant people down to Egypt for a period of 400 years. And after the 400 years, he would lead them out in a mighty act of redemption. And God has continued to fulfill this covenant promise that through his seed, the nations of the world would be blessed. Dear friends, that promise is being fulfilled today, right here, right now, as we are gathered together. We are among the nations of the world who have received blessing through Abraham's offspring, our Lord Jesus Christ. You, you are witnessing with your very own eyes right now as you look around this room the promise of Genesis chapter 12 in its fulfillment. But in this story... What I want you to see is that there is a little foretaste of the fulfillment of that promise when Jacob comes and meets Pharaoh. Twice we're told that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. If you didn't have your Bible open in front of you and you heard me say that, you might think, hang on, Jared, did you get that the wrong way around? Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Because doesn't Hebrews chapter 7 say categorically that it's always the, the superior who blesses the inferior, that it's the greater who blesses the lesser? So what's the point here? Why does it tell us that Jacob blessed Pharaoh? Because it's the fulfillment of the promise. In your seed, the nations will be blessed. That's what's going on here. In the, in the seed of Abraham, through, through Jacob, and especially through Joseph, the nations of the world are being blessed, particularly through this one man, Joseph. Egypt and all of the surrounding people, they were, they were saved from from death through this family. Now, it's, 
Of course, not ultimately the, the, fulfill, the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, but it's a little, it's a little picture, it's a little cameo. Uh, it's, a, it's a temporary salvation, it's a physical salvation, but it is meant to be a gospel picture of what God would ultimately do through the true offspring of Abraham. Just as the Exodus event is meant to be a gospel picture of how God would come and and redeem his people out of bondage to sin and death and bring them out to himself and bring them into a place of blessing and rest. And notice what the the response is to this salvation brought through Joseph. It's it's seen in the Egyptians. Isn't that interesting? The, The Gentiles. They, they, have, they have nothing left. It's, it's only when they have nothing left, they come to Joseph and they say, our need is such that we cannot provide for ourselves. And unless you help us, we will perish. We have nothing left to give you but ourselves and everything that we have. So we lay ourselves before you, Joseph. Give us what we need to live. And what a marvelous picture of the gospel and, and how how it works. And, and Joseph, I think, is such a picture of Jesus who, who is our Joseph. The, the Jesus pattern is all over Joseph's life. How he, was, how he was rejected by his own and utterly humiliated, stripped. How he was uh, falsely condemned. Uh, how he was utterly humiliated. And then how he was raised to the right hand of the majesty on high from where he is now seated to provide out of his own wealth of resources for the needs of the nations of the earth. Just as we come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, be the bread of life for me. I have nothing to give you but myself. Provide what I need and I will be your servant. We have a marvelous picture here of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's this, there's this family reunion scene, there's this gospel scene, and then thirdly, I want us to think about this Jacob scene. It's at the beginning of our passage, the first few verses of chapter 46. The family's on their way down to Egypt, they're stopped overnight in Beersheba, and the, the Lord comes to Jacob in the night and says to him, do not be afraid. Why does the Lord say that to Jacob? I think the answer is obvious, because Jacob was afraid. Why do we say to anyone, do not be afraid? Because we believe they're afraid. Why do we tell our children, don't be afraid? Because they're scared. Why is Jacob afraid? I think it's perhaps because he's questioning, is this this the right thing to do? Should, Should we really leave the promised land, the land that God has given to to my fathers and his, their descendants? Should, should we really be going, of all places, down to Egypt where my father Isaac and my grandfather Abraham failed so miserably? And you know, let's face it, Jacob is, a, is an old man, 130 years old at this point, and I think as we get older, we don't like change very much. Imagine what it would be like uprooting your family, trying to take, take all of your possessions moving your entire household hundreds of miles away, going to a foreign land when you've lived in Johnstown your entire life. 
What are the people going to be like there? Will we be able to worship there? What's this, how is this going to impact my family? We can understand why Jacob is experiencing fear. And so Jacob is presented, I think, as a scared old man. But the Lord comes to him and says, do not be afraid. Now, if this doesn't give you a sense of the tenderness and the kindness and the compassion of our God, I don't know what will. Because here's this, here's this fearful, backslidden old man who has refused the comfort of the Lord for years, even though God had blessed him so richly in the past. But for years, he's been, he's been holding on to his sorrow instead of caring for his other sons. He's been holding on to his grief instead of receiving the comfort of God. He is a pathetic, weak, fearful, 130-year-old stumbling believer. And the Lord comes to him and says, Jacob, do not be afraid. And I want you to see here how God deals with Jacob's fears. I think there are lessons here for, for us as we seek to deal with our own fears and as we seek to help others deal with with, with their fears. I, I, am, uh, I am increasingly convinced that many, many Christians are paralyzed by fear. Though the gospel drives out fear. You know, you wouldn't see it on their face. Perhaps you wouldn't pick up on it in passing conversation, but behind the public face and behind the religious cliches, many Christians are a mass of fears. And it's no help, is it, to, to merely say to them, don't be afraid. Put it, pull yourself together, man. Don't be afraid. But that's not what the Lord does here. In essence, what the Lord does with Jacob is he's, he's saying to him, Jacob, understand that the reasons you have to not be afraid are far, far greater than the reasons you have to be afraid. And so here's Jacob, and his fears are weighing him down. And as it were, the Lord comes and begins to, on the other side of the scale, outweigh uh, his fears with all of the reasons he has to not be afraid. And so I want us to look at this for a moment here as because I think it's a helpful lesson in how to deal with, with my fears and to help others deal with the fears that they have in their life. I think there's three or four things I want you to see here. The first thing is God reminds Jacob of who he is. In, in verse 3, he says, I am, I am God. I'm a God of your father. Isn't it true that when we are stricken with fear, that at least one of the reasons that we are experiencing that fear is because we've actually forgotten God. We've actually forgotten who He is. And, and here we're reminded that God Himself is the source of the believer's greatest comfort. And He re reveals Himself as the God of His Father to, to reinforce His, His faithfulness. Jacob, I've I was with your father and, and your grandfather before him, and I did not fail them, and I will not fail you now. And then second, <coughs> notice how he reassures Jacob that his promises are absolutely reliable. God points Jacob to his promises, his covenant promises. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. It's the same promise 
that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. And so God tells Jacob in the midst of his fear, remember my promises. I am God. I'm the God of your father. My promises will not fail. And we see this again and again in scripture. God comforts his people with his promises and tells them to draw forth assurance from all of the promises. As Dave said, the hundreds of promises that God has given to us in his word. But you know, our our problem, I think, is often that we don't know God's promises. And so when fear comes, we are hopeless and helpless. Or if we do know some of God's promises, we, we fail to apply them to our life and our circumstances. But you see here, God assures Jacob that his promise, it's his promises are utterly reliable. And that's actually connected, I think, to why this chapter goes on to give us this long list of names. This caravan that's making its way down to Egypt and actually it gives us the precise number that there were 70 people on their way down to Egypt. Why does it give us that detail? What's this this doing in this section? I I think, well, you actually have to do some strange arithmetic to get to the number 70, so why is it 70? You remember at the Tower of Babel earlier on in Genesis, it was 70 nations who conspired together against God, and immediately after that, God called Abraham, Abram, to himself and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation, a people for my own possession. And in place of the 70 nations of the world who conspired together against God, now we see 70 members of a caravan heading down to Egypt with God saying, I am going to make you into a great nation, a people for my own possession. And you understand, then, who's the original audience of this? Imagine you're, you're, you're Israel in the wilderness some 400 years later. And, and you're reading about this. And now Israel is a vast multitude of people. And they're seeing, yes, God's promises are absolutely reliable. And this is all meant to be a picture because this promise has only expanded beyond the people of of, uh, of Abraham's descendants to the nations of the world, Jews and Gentiles who embrace the true offspring of Abraham by faith. God is forming together one holy nation whose citizenship is in heaven. And so one of the ways we learn to deal with our fears and help others with their fears is by reminding ourselves and others that God's promises are absolutely reliable. And the third way that God deals with Jacob's fear is this. God is saying to him, if I, if I can put it this way, why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? You remember, you remember that story. Uh, Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. And, and, and the storm is raging and, and water is pouring into the boat and, and the disciples, many of them experienced fishermen, are out of their minds with fear. And they go to Jesus and they say, don't you, don't you care that we're about to perish, that we're about to die? And Jesus, in essence, is saying to them, I'm with you in the boat. <laughs> I'm right here beside you. And then to their own shame, he shows them why they should have trusted in him all along when he calmed the winds and the waves. 
He was teaching his disciples that faith focuses on the Lord and not on the circumstances that we fear. And so look at what God says in verse 4 of chapter 46 to Jacob. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also will bring you up again. I'm with you, Jacob. I will see you through this. I will see your descendants through this. I will not leave you or, nor forsake you. You are not alone. That is one of the greatest sources of comfort in the Christian life. That no matter where we find ourselves, the Christian is in fact never alone. And so this, the personal presence, the, the evangelical presence, the, the saving presence, the, the nearness of God is a source of comfort in the believer's life. And then finally, God gives Jacob a very, very personal, uh, precious promise. Uh, here's this old man, 130 years old, who, who thought for years that his son Joseph had died. Maybe this doesn't mean very much to you if you're young, but God says to Jacob, Jacob, you're going to make it to Egypt. You're going to see your son Joseph again. And when the hour comes for your sojourn on earth to come to an end, he will close your eyes. He'll be there with you. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of how our Heavenly Father deals so tenderly with his children. And what's the, what's the lesson here for us more, more generally? It tells us that even in the hour of our death, that our life is precious in the sight of God. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So dear friends, do you have, do you have fears? Fears that paralyze you. Fears that haunt you and, and chase you down day after day. So this passage is, is saying to us, if this God is your God, so faithful, so, so tender, so compassionate, so gracious, so kind, you need not fear because you can trust him with your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask now that by the gospel of your grace, you would indeed dispel all our fears. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.